The materials provided are for information only and do not constitute as an offer. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors. Neither Zach or Jack are financial advisors. The information contained in this podcast episode has been compiled with considerable care to ensure its accuracy at the date of publication. However, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made to accuracy or completeness. We shall not be responsible for any consequential effect, nor be liable for any direct, consequential, incidental, indirect loss or damage, however caused, arising from the use of, inability to use, or reliance upon any information or materials provided on this podcast, whether or not such loss or damage is caused by us. Links to third-party sites are provided for your information only. The content and software of these sites have been issued by third parties. As such, we cannot be responsible for the accuracy of information contained in these sites, nor be held liable for any loss or damage arising from or related to their use. Investors should be cautious about any and all crypto asset and investment recommendations and should consider the source of any advice on crypto asset selection. Various factors, including personal or corporate ownership, may influence or factor into an expert's stock analysis or opinion. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual crypto assets before making a purchase decision. In addition, investors are advised that past crypto asset performance is no guarantee of future price appreciation. Do not invest money you cannot afford to lose. All investments come with a degree of risk. Hey, Jack. Hey, Zach. How you doing? I'm good. Air is a lot better than since we last recorded a podcast. Currently looking for at a nice view of the Vegas Strip. Yeah, uh, I hear the air is not improved for those still in the Bay, but I'm glad that you're out of it. Getting a little action, a little productivity in, in Vegas. I'm back in Cleveland, Ohio. Got home early for the holidays after a wedding in Philadelphia. But yeah, again, as always, that's not why we're here. We're joined by another fantastic guest. Zach, would you give her a proper introduction? So Cindy and I first met when I was booking some flights for her and some others at the fund she was an investment analyst at Virgil Capital. And then kind of like us, she recently has started a new fund investing in a variety of crypto assets, 256 Ventures. Cindy, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, so Zach gave a pretty good introduction. Uh, I Prior to starting 256, I met Zach through a fund, crypto arbitrage fund uh, based in New York called Virgil Capital. Uh, where Zach was helping us book some uh, heavily discounted flights, uh, which uh, Zach and I had some pretty good conversations over. It was actually a similar strategy, right? Zach was using points arbitrage. We were doing crypto arbitrage. So we got along very well because of you know the similar nature of uh, our business models. <laughs> so uh, the previous fund that I was working at, we, we did crypto arbitrage over 40 different exchanges in six different countries. Uh, and uh, returned quite well over the past year, a completely market neutral strategy. And so uh, what kind of spun out of that was a, a fund more focused on investing in um, blockchain and web 3.0 technologies called 256 Ventures, which is named after the Bitcoin hashing algorithm, SHA256. And so it's, it's kind of a geeky name, but we wanted to, I guess, reflect uh, our view uh, on the market and, and our thesis of investing in the, in the best blockchain projects out there. And uh, Bitcoin, I guess, was the cornerstone of uh, blockchain, of emerging blockchain technologies. So to date, we've invested in projects like Mainframe, Mincorus, Republic Protocol, Perlin, uh, Tari, and Affinity. So our fund is based in Singapore, but we invest pretty globally. 
our main, I guess, regions are in the U.S., uh, Korea, Singapore, and uh, parts of teams in China. So uh, we have a pretty diversified strategy. For instance, we don't necessarily only invest in blockchain projects. Uh, sometimes we also uh, we also look at, I guess, different varieties and different uh, investment structures. Uh, for instance, we we might you know look at a crypto mining pool. We might look at uh, infrastructure for building synchronized tokens. Etc. So we're pretty flexible in terms of uh, our investment mandate. Essentially, we just we we would like to support the blockchain technology investment industry, and uh, we like to find ways, um, especially cre- more creative ways, to build incentive token models to so that value can accrue I guess, to the layers that we invest in. But I guess that's the content of the podcast today. So, Cindy, I'm curious. Why pivot away from or add to the arbitrage or the focus on arbitrage and go into a value investing arena? Yeah, so I think a lot of the a lot of the funds that I know either take a uh, three to six month approach to investing uh, in in these uh, crypto assets, or they take a you know five to ten year approach uh, that's more that's more nascent to I guess uh, the, the Silicon Valley approach. Of investing into these technologies, but for us, we take the middle ground and we invest on a two to four year timeline. So we really saw an opportunity where I guess no other fund, where few other funds were, were looking. Um, that was uh, two things. Uh, one, looking at looking at the midterm view, not necessarily investing. I guess with the goal of complete mass adoption, where all payment systems are uh, crypto. We were looking at, 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 I guess, midterm adoption and what that might look like in two to four years. And um, investing on, on the second, on the second hand, on the other hand, also investing uh, globally, which we, we saw funds doing, but not necessarily doing much of. A lot of um, funds that we knew were more uh, localized, or they looked at kind of uh, two regions and specialized in that. We we saw an opportunity to uh, take it to the next step and be completely regional agnostic. So, yeah, we we saw. Uh, I mean, arbitrage is just fun and exciting, but there are also is limits to how much uh, that can make in the horizons that which that can make in terms of um, my pers- personal skill set and the, the skill set of my partner uh, David. Uh, we're more, I guess, our background is more focused on early stage VC. Um, so we wanted to pivot and diversify our interests. And really look at this emerging technology, this technological stack, and see what we could do there. Where early stage VC really speaks to uh, what our hearts are curious about. So I, I guess high frequency trading is, is really interesting and um, can be very profitable. But in terms of curiosity and I think where uh, the landscape is going to go, we believe that in terms of adoption, it makes the most sense to be investing in, in these investing as well as incubating um, these asset classes because very few people, I guess, take the uh, approach of trying to bring decentralized products to kind of a, a centralized user base. And for us, building user bases is much more exciting, I guess, than, than, than trading. Not, not that we don't do much of that even now, but it's, it's kind of a different skill set, a different type of activity, <laughs> different type of um, excitement. What does your due diligence process look like, and you know how how have you kind of come up with this, especially kind of with more of a background in uh, high frequency trading and arbitrage now going to to value investing? First of all, a lot of these projects are 
if you look at traditional VC terms, uh, still in seed stage, still in seed stage uh, in terms of how well they've uh, progressed, right? The evaluations might look like uh, Series A, Series B deals. So even this discrepancy, um, that's something that we we take in, in, in mind as well. I think that the main reason that these projects are uh, valued so highly is that, first of all, there's very little consensus as to uh, how to actually value a seed stage crypto project, right, that has the potential to be the underlying infrastructure for millions of other crypto projects, but doesn't yet do, doesn't yet do that because the overall crypto user base is so, so small. So it's, it's a problem of uh, not being, it's a problem of comparison too. Uh, like projects look at previous uh, projects as a comparison point for how much they should be valued. In terms of how do we look at this internally, it's, it becomes really difficult to support this with, um, say, a DCF or, uh, say, a, yeah, even, a, even a network valuation model, right? Like um, MCPQ models. Uh, becomes really difficult to to, to try to pr- project project quantitatively uh, whether evaluation makes sense for us because that's the whole goal of um, our DD process. We're trying to make sure, we're trying to decide if, if this valuation makes sense in the next one two years. In terms of building, say, like a statistical model for okay, this valuation makes sense. There's also millions of other predictive factors that we're not factoring in, like. What are the secondary markets going to support in the next uh, one, two, one to two, three years that will make this uh, current valuation justifiable? So we really go down to the basics and we look at, okay, what, what does the team need in the next three to six months? What, 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 is their, what, what is their runway and how long are they raising for? And uh, let's say if, they, if, if the team is open to negotiating, we, we always prefer to uh, talk this through with them. I guess our valuation model is not so much how revolutionary is your project. It's how much money do you need to to move to your next milestone in the next short term period. If teams, I guess, agree to this kind, this this more rational, this more uh, rational approach to take getting to fundraising, that's a good sign for us because then our our uh, interests are more aligned in terms of getting to know their burn rate. And um, getting to know how much they're like what they're actually doing in the next uh, three or six months is more of an accountability structure. So that's, I guess, our first metric for why for for do founders uh, actually want to build this? Like, do they have? Uh, are they realistic enough to be able to build uh, the, the product that they they aim to build? And you know, the first thing we look at is like, what are you going to do? What kind of resources do you need to get there? And so looking at how nimble and resourceful a founder is, is always uh, one of the key things that we believe creates traction. And yeah, we, we really like, um, we, we really like looking at how founders have maybe built huge consumer bases before. And if they have any creative ideas to get there, like, uh, we, we always support that. Like, for instance, a project that we're looking at recently called a Portal Network. It's a decentralized, it's a, it's a blockchain re- naming registry. So you can get names like uh, ZachResnick.eth, ZachResnick.bdc through their platform. You can, you can bid for that. And they've done this for uh, over, you know, five, or over 20 different chains now, including OneChain and Enigma, Zilliqa. So it's kind of like a, a blockchain as a service uh, project, right? And, um, you know, their, their burn rate, given how much uh, they, 
given their advances in their you know technological processes, uh, it's actually uh, very low. So we look at we, we we like that as it's a sign that the founder is resourceful and Nimble knows how to essentially knows how to like uh, work his or her way through to uh, huge customer adoption. So yeah, we, we really like resourceful and nimble founders. Yeah, that's cool. I'm curious. To what degree do you think the sort of tokenization and liquidity liquidity immediately available in this space does that unlock the sort of two-year time horizon that perhaps wasn't available to VC types and investor types before blockchain? That's that's a really interesting comment, and I was just we were thinking about I guess how this this instant liquidity or not not even instant liquidity maybe you know midterm liquidity has unlocked mm-hmm. um, a new. It's, it's it's a new market, right? It's it's uh, it's not the same as uh, it's not the same asset class and as investing in equity or investing in um or investing in debt for a company. It's a completely different asset class and it's a completely different uh, way to to invest. And so it's the same thing, I guess, that secure that proponents of security tokens argue. It's that okay for security tokens, uh, what we're seeing is that. Okay, real estate investments that might typically take much longer to to mature and to be able to uh, get go to market now has a as another path to to market as another path to to being sold and being traded and so that that might come at a liquidity premium, right? So I think that what we're seeing right now is that there is a liquidity premium to these projects that are becoming liquid in you know three to six months and uh, investors are, are able to make a killing in that time, right? So. I think that increasing valuations now are a result of that liquidity premium, and the the game kind of has become okay. How how soon can you the the go to market has become how soon can you go to exchanges as opposed to how soon can you get in the hands of the users, right? So uh, as much as I think it's exciting that these projects are becoming tradable so so quickly, you know, before a product has even come up. We also don't want that to be our main focus, right? Because we, we see it as, as a, mainly a distraction. It doesn't facilitate actual usage. In fact, it, it discourages actual usage because you, you, you don't want to hold a token that you think, you don't want to use a token that you think is going to go up 10x in value in the next few months, right? I think as, as exciting as it is as, an, as a current asset class, uh, right now, I think we've uh, focused, we've become too focused on this liquidity, uh, building this liquidity premium, changing kind of the rules of the game, as opposed to focusing on the, the fundamental, how, how do we build valuable user networks? And I think that's the question that we should go back to, as opposed to focusing on this exchange listing hype game. Cool. So, so Cindy, I, I had a question for you based on kind of how you discussed your due diligence and investing strategy, which is, I know it can often be very difficult to use quantitative modeling when making investment decisions. Something we've struggled with here for kind of how to use it and when we have used it for, you know, how much weight to put that in, in regards to our mental models around decision making. And specifically, have you used quantitative modeling? And if so, how? For, for us, we look at it from uh, both a, a very micro uh, point of view as well as a more macro point of view. And um, I guess bear in mind that for us, uh, this, these quantitative models are so highly experimental and um, they're not uh, necessarily used as a single source of decision making. 
uh, as opposed to like models that would be used in a in a, in a quant model, right? So it, it factors in into um, many of our decisions. So in terms of uh, quant modeling for the, the market in general, we like to look at um, that's more of the secondary mark the secondary piece. It's just uh, looking at and comparing all the valuations out there. When what's the typical typical uh, go to go to market or go to liquidation time, and what what are the typical liquidity premiums there? And that that allows us to factor in into talking to projects about what their I guess premium should be or what their their valuations should be. So the way that we look at I guess industry wise uh, quant quantitative modeling, uh, it's more of okay what what are the other projects doing? How effective are they? What are the parameters? that the other projects have or are looking at that makes them or justifies this valuation, right? So we, we kind of look at predicting what a project's valuation would be given given a, a, a huge variety of factors. And that's more of on, on the market side. Um, internally, you know, we also run that model through the industry, the industry might model to see, I guess, where our projects match up or the projects who we're looking at match up compared to everything else in the market. Again, a lot of these things are a little bit more subjective when you look at things like, okay, the strength of the team, the quality of the team, the uh, quality of a, a GitHub repo, it's very difficult to, to, I guess, to quantify. So there is some element of, there is some element of subjectiveness in these metrics. So I would say, you know, always get more and more eyes uh, to look at that to make sure it's as neutral as possible. Um, but that's, uh, that's how we look at modeling, I guess, the, the market as it is now. Um, in terms of internal modeling, I think we've uh, talked a little bit about uh, token economics modeling before. And for that, we, we try as much as we can to not model cash flows necessarily, but we try to do uh, agent-based modeling in terms of uh, what is the, what, what is the, life cycle of, of a token within an ecosystem, how many, uh, how many agents uh, will it typically uh, pass through, and what are the incentives of the agents to act a certain way, uh, given that they're holding the token or given that they, they want the token. And this is, this is quite complex because you have both the internal value of the token as well as the secondary value of the token. So we tend to only look at the, the value of the token internally and inside the, the ecosystem as opposed to <laughs> looking at the secondary market valuation of the token, because then factoring that in would be, would, would frankly be quite a nightmare for, 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 for uh, how accurate and how concise the model becomes. So we only look at the, uh, how the model, how the token is actually designed. So, so we try to run some agent based uh, tests and, uh, given what the incentives are. So, we essentially test the incentive uh, models that these projects have built to make sure that uh, the agents are acting in ways that they expect. And so that's kind of our internal token DD process. Right. And that that's very reminiscent to how we've gone about some of our tokenomic advising. That's sort of modeling the behavior of various agents, or I guess you could say stakeholders, the life cycle of a token. Where is a token held? When is it spent? How, or does anyone need to hold it is I think an important question. I'm glad to hear and interested to hear that you guys are doing that. So obviously tokenomics, or you just mentioned that tokenomic modeling is a part of your due diligence process. Uh, Something that we've been wanting to ask our guests is 
what does tokenomics mean to you? Like, how would you define that term, or what? Where do you see that term being applicable uh, in your process? I, I think token economics is looking like I mentioned the there's the internal value of the token, and then there's the external value of the token, right? I think initially there is a gap between the initial value of the token, the, as in the internal value of the token within an ecosystem, and and the secondary market value of the token, right? That's primary and secondary value. So I would say in this case, in in the, in the crypto market landscape, almost every single token is valued more in the secondary market than they are in the primary markets, right? So if you ask a, a VC why they're doing token economic modeling, I think a lot of them would be hard-pressed to, to give you an answer because we would be more interested in finding out, okay, what would the secondary market valuation of this token be as opposed to looking at the primary value, right? But for us, we see it really as a value, uh, a way of quantifying the value of users within a network. And, and as opposed to how much do people perceive this, this, this company to be, you know, to, to, to be what it is. And so it's kind of like, it's kind of like PE, uh, price earnings ratios, uh, traditional stock markets, right? Uh, it's like, it's a uh, price of crypto asset to the network value itself. In, in, in the crypto markets landscape. So the way that we look at token economics is that it's the internal value and it's measuring the uh, total uh, value that's created uh, within a crypto network. And we assume that within these crypto networks, there isn't necessarily a centralized entity that's collecting cash flows. So the cash flow modeling is more like spread out th- through different entities. So that's the way that we, I guess, would define token economics. So you're essentially looking for high layer one value relative to layer two. I know that wasn't the term you used, but primary market value relative to secondary market value. That would indicate a good investment opportunity to you guys. E- yes and no, because I guess in the secondary markets, we would also want that value to be as high as possible. But I guess it's a different timeline that we're looking at, right? It's um, uh, sure we want uh, we, we want the secondary market for this uh, this product to be doing well because that informs our investment, right? But we also want the primary value to catch up to the secondary value so that it's actually worthy of its current valuation. Otherwise, otherwise our investment would not make sense in the in the next three or four years because it's just part of a hype cycle, right? So. I guess our responsibility is making sure that the primary value catches up to the secondary market value, if that makes sense. No, that does make sense. I guess the underlying assumption is that there's no particularly low secondary values at this point. Uh, Unless you count projects that are uh, trading, I guess, like 10K market cap. (laughs) The ones that are uh, really low in the market cap ladder. Sure. So something that I've been curious to ask uh, other people, you know, in our position is what are sort of fundamental assumptions you may or may not be making in terms of how the technology will proceed that are informing your investment decisions? And just to elaborate on that a little bit, obviously, a lot of the projects that, you know, we're both investing in now are subject to certain technological limitations of blockchain in late 2018 that we see is likely to be alleviated uh, and that will allow these networks to grow in a, in a more profitable way. And so, you know, what are things that you're sort of banking on being solved and what are things that you're looking for 
internal solutions for from your various uh, portfolio companies? So assumptions as in uh, what, what will be necessary in the next year or so, like what, what projects actually need? Just to make sure I'm answering your questions, right? Yeah, essentially, what do you feel is going to, or what are you guys making on, you know, these things are going to get worked out and our portfolio companies will benefit from these improvements in the ecosystem versus what are things that you want portfolio companies to have a plan for how to address themselves? Oh, that's that's a really good question. I think enterprise sales is is the main one. I, I don't know if that's like really a technological uh, <laughs> assumption, but I think it's an assumption that a lot of uh, projects are making right now, especially public chain projects, because, uh, well, a lot of their sales uh, or, or their go-to-market is dependent on how, how, how they sell to, to enterprise customers, right? And that's, that's, that's a little assumption in itself that enterprise customers are actually going to migrate their database onto your blockchain. So I think in terms of the sales cycles for a lot of our portfolio companies, they're really like some of them are, are banking on the fact that okay, enterprise customers are going to use this, but a lot of them are going the other the, the, the other route, which is just looking at which small uh, SMEs are willing to partner with them, do a test run, and see if that is actually necessary, see if the blockchain element is necessary, and uh, move forward with that as opposed to immediately selling to an enterprise customer who has no idea what a public chain is. Yeah, and um, I guess another more technological assumption that a lot of uh, projects that are not public chains are are making is that, say, Ethereum is actually going to be able to support uh, all their operations, and either that or they're going to find another public chain uh, in the next year where, it, where they can migrate to to make sure that you know there is enough there there is enough uh, there there's enough a scaling solution to to be able to support their internal operations. So. Um, that's why we're looking at a lot of scalability solutions uh, right now, whether it's uh, layer one or layer two, uh, as some you know content distribution networks, or publication or, or innovative propagation networks. Uh, it's more of a layer zero problem. Uh, we're looking a lot into that because we believe that that's going to su- uh, supplement the work of our portfolio companies. So uh, you know, I guess the assumption is that there will be a solution that scales, or there will be a, a main uh, there will be infrastructure that that helps uh, all the decentralized applications scale within the next year. So that that that's the assumption. I don't know if enough projects are prepared for the fact that 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 assumption might not hold true. So I think that will delay the development of the ecosystem as a whole. But I don't think that we're at that point yet where that's really critical until we actually build large enough user bases where where, where that's necessary and. I guess that's also another assumption that we're holding next year that there are actually users uh, who are interested in you know these applications that that we're working so hard in trying to build. Another thing is also payment on ramp payment systems. As a lot of these projects are assuming that payment and and money will flow pretty easily from consumers, let's say bank accounts, into tokens, and so. I think that's that's a very big assumption that's uh, potentially problematic because then that excludes the population of people who don't actually have crypto in their wallets who are immediately able to to buy tokens and spend in that and, and spend and spend it in their ecosystem right because if you're only looking at, at crypto users then that's severely limited but if you look if um, there is an on ramp payment solution that uh, enables a really quick settlement of uh, fiat to crypto uh, that 
uh, will help a lot of projects uh, unlock a larger user base of people who didn't necessarily own crypto before. So I think, yeah, another assumption that our, I guess, uh, many projects are banking on is that there will be a better on-ramp solution to uh, immediately convert uh, fiat into crypto in order to be used within their ecosystems. So when a company approaches you saying that they are expecting, you know, let's just focus on that last issue, you know, an on-ramp for fiat payments, when they approach you saying that we expect this is going to be resolved, you know, by the time our, you know, development is finished, do you say to them, look, you know, we, we feel like you need to be, or maybe you don't say anything to them, but are you, are you looking for people who have their own solution to this or are you optimistic along with them? I guess it sounds like you're not. And so are there any projects you're working with that you feel have a novel solution to this for, you know, on a private basis? Yeah. So, you know, we, we do invest in a select amount of projects, but at the same time, we're always exploring the existence to see uh, who's out there doing, doing what. And so I guess building that mental map of projects that are working on this and looking at, you know, how, how their roadmaps are going uh, helps us also to uh, either feed or kill our optimism. So it, that that helps us with our with our projects too, because if they're if they're wondering, okay, well, what is the solution to uh, this is a problem? We would tell them, okay, don't build it, don't build it. Wait for this other project that we know of, who's going to circulate back and likely launch within you know the next the next couple of months or so, and then look to integrate with them. So that's that's mainly our the advice that we give to our portfolio companies. Uh, don't try to build everything yourself because that's going to be distracting. You should be building uh, what you sought out to build, not all these infrastructural problems. Because like what we're seeing, is, it's like it's like trying to build uh, a swanky. It's it's like trying to build a swanky metro in a city that barely has infrastructure for roads, right? Um, so that's. That's how we would look at the, the ecosystem now. It's like we're, we're, we're trying to uh, run before we can even crawl. And we should look at kind of building the, the building blocks of, of, a, of, a, of a city, of this like city that we're trying to build first uh, before tr- uh, looking to jump. But then there should always be people building like moonshot innovations, uh, like let's say like a, like a Hyperloop, right? Uh, there, there are people building that when, when roads don't even exist yet or cars don't even exist yet. So I guess for us, we... We see these different classes as a way to, I guess, uh, have synergy with each other. So uh, the moonshot, I guess, projects can work on what they're good at while waiting for the other projects to complete uh, their their basic building blocks. So that's how we would frame it to to our projects. Instead of um, getting the projects that we're investing to uh, build everything uh, simultaneously and uh, build, like, I guess, a lot of mediocre products as opposed to focusing on one main one. So, Cindy, what are some of the favorite kind of tokenomic structures you're excited about and some of the projects you've seen or that you're investing in? Uh, very recently, uh, we invested in a project called Musica. Uh, it's a Korean-based project. And, uh, you know, I can kind of talk through that token economic structure. I think in terms of favorite token economic structure, that, that's kind of that's a very difficult question to answer uh, just because I, I haven't actually seen many of them in action yet, so I can't answer that just yet. But in terms of, I guess, what I, I'm most kind of excited to, to build out is um, is this recent uh, project that we've just invested in and, and became and uh, just started trading 
um, Hobi, Korea yesterday. So uh, the way that they're, it, it's a music, it's a music blockchain project. Instead of just focusing on, on streaming uh, and getting users to pay per stream or to pay a subscription fee, uh, we think that it has a pretty in- innovative um, business model where fans in Korea uh, are able to invest effectively into artists that they believe are going to to rise or get picked up by uh, YG Entertainment Group uh, in the next uh, in, in in the future, right? So the way this this works in token economics is that fans essentially uh, stake their tokens onto a particular artist, and then as as the artist grows in popularity, the fan receives the invest the investment back as a form of uh, kind of dividends from the revenues that the artist makes from streaming. So it's a whole ecosystem, and then the, the fan uh, can use that token to you know listen to more music or to uh, spend it on merchandise. So yeah, I, I like it because it's uh, it's a complete kind of internal ecosystem, and it's focusing first of all on the user. The token itself is abstracted away. The user itself uh, simply focuses on what they like doing, which is investing in, in RS, which they didn't actually get, they, they, they never got a chance to do before. So that's why we think it's, it's more of an innovative token model. Uh, and I guess I, I take what I said back before about uh, I haven't seen a good token model work yet. I think the, the I think exchange models are the, some of the best utility token models out there, like uh, Binance token, Hobby token. And I think that those are really the only token models that I've seen to be functional today. So the, the Binance token actually, you know, gives you utility, which is a discount on trading fees. And as a result, you're incentivized to hold them. So the incentive system really holds there. And, and then the, the mechanism that they have to increase the value of tokens is to, is to burn them. Right? So, and this has actually created a stronger community of arguably a stronger community of uh, Binance token users uh, while abstracting away the, the while abstracting away the the actual token itself, it, it becomes like a side feature, right? Like, oh, hey, do you want to use these tokens um, on this trade? And it becomes a, a, by default a yes, as opposed to uh, users having to okay, like let me go uh, purchase some minus tokens and and go back to my trade and use that to uh, reduce my cost. It, it's much more automatic. The UI is there, the community is there, and the the internal usage is actually there. So that's why I guess that model makes the most sense to me. And, you know, we're looking to abstract that into the other uh, models of the other projects that we're looking at too. Cindy, we really appreciate you joining us. Uh, I don't know if there's, I know you guys have some excellent medium articles. I don't know if there's anywhere else that you would direct our listeners to keep tabs on 256 Ventures, uh, what you guys have going on. Can you point us in the right direction? Yeah, definitely. I guess LinkedIn is a good page, even though it's like more sterile. Medium is always the best place. We uh, we're putting out articles maybe once or twice a week, and you know, feel free to reach out to us on on Twitter. We don't tweet much nowadays, but um, we're on two five six VC. You can reach out to us there. Uh, send us some send us uh, any cool projects we should be looking at that we're not. Yeah, that's I guess. LinkedIn, Medium, Twitter will be the best ways to, to reach us. Okay. Cindy, thanks so much for your time today and looking forward to seeing how 256 develops. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys, for having me.